Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 81. This is a podcast about Berserk from the administrators of Skullknight.net, if you are new. Uh, we are back from a little break after the start of the series hiatus a couple months back. Uh, no word yet, not that we expected any, uh, on when the series will be resuming, but we're still expecting sometime between uh, January or March is what I'm aiming for. Early 2017 is the word. So... Berserk is, uh, has been away for a bit, as you, as you know, and we've all been kind of spending our own time elsewhere. I know myself, I've not been spent, I have not been spending mu- as much time on the forums as a result. So, uh, Azil, how have you been spending your downtime from Berserk? Yeah, walking mostly. Working. Just working, working, working. Even when you're not working, you're working. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I've also been, yeah, I've also been watching, uh, Westworld, the TV series based on the novel. And um, yeah, pretty much that's it. I've I've recently started playing Tyranny from the guys from Obsidian, the guys who did uh, Pillars of Eternity and before that the Baldur's Gate series and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, is Tyranny already out? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, I was surprised. I saw it was out on on uh, Google Games, and I was like, wow. So wow. I purchased it yesterday, and uh, well, I just started. Like, I literally just created my character, so I can't tell you much about it. But apparently, it's very good. That's the game, I remember hearing about it, like the character design stage or the world design stage. They were saying it was like, you know, an RPG world or fantasy world where evil won the final battle. Is that the setup? Yeah, pretty much. Same, uh, same game? Okay. Yeah, the evil guy rule, like, you know, he just conquered everything. And you're actually part of the army of the evil guy. So as you start the game, you're, you know, an evil dude serving the big evil bad guy with all these other, you know, evil middle-level generals in between. And you're on your way to squash a rebellion from the most recently conquered territory. And th- this is some topical shit. Do you think they timed the release to November 8th? Uh, you know, well, I mean, it is uh, it is very topical. But, yeah, I, I don't think that was necessarily the, you know, the reason for it to exist. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty topical. But I, I don't wow. expect, uh, you know... Donald Trump to have as much power as uh, Kairos, the evil overlord <laughs> of the game. Who knows, though? Maybe he can rain yeah. fire and lava on, you know, countries or parts of the countries that resist him. So, beware uh, Santa Clara County. It's coming for you. <laughs> uh, Grail, how about yourself? How have you weathered this, the Trump storm? Oh, the storm. Well, I've thrown myself into a post-apocalyptic wasteland of a different kind, which is Fallout 4. Uh, I got oh, that wow. for my birthday from a friend of mine. So I've been, I've been kind of, <laughs> kind of uh, relocating, relocating the post-apocalyptic mm. feel. And then um, I've just been working on uh, thinking about what I want to do for Secret Schnoz this year. Um, so I. I haven't done the um, the the hat grab yet, where we find out who everybody's secret schnoz is. But I'm I'm very excited because we have lots of people this year, and I want to do something special. And then, um, so we'll there see. probably are people that don't know what that is. I I oh, only right. I only barely know what it is. <laughs> Isn't it basically like white elephant for Skullnight.net? Yeah, it's, it's basically a Skullnight.net secret Santa. We just renamed it Secret Schnoz to be on theme. Uh, so basically, I take um, the information of everybody who wants to sign up. They can sign up with their email, with their Steam ID, or with a real address. And then we jumble up the names, pick them out of a hat, essentially, and then send each person who signs up another person's information. And they give them a gift worth at least 15 American dollars. 
uh, or make a gift, and then we all post our gifts on the forum. There's no so ceiling? There's no ceiling. Fifteen's the minimum, but there's no ceiling. It could be $10,000. There's no ceiling. It could be... It could get pretty expensive. And people spend quite a lot of time on it, actually. Last year, I got a wonderful gift from Jacqueline, which was a... Um, the It was like a 24-inch tall, or at least 24-inch tall. I could be wrong. could be even taller. A large portrait of Void. And uh, it was done in charcoal and, and chalk. And it, it's hanging up on my wall. And it is a very lovely picture. And I Yeah, that is awesome. Nice. So. It's very cool. Yeah. So that's just a, a fun thing that I've been working on in the meantime. And uh, hopefully that'll pass the time between now and the end of the year. So does everyone ship their stuff to you? Is that how it works? Uh, no, they, they ship their stuff directly to... or Oh, you, you just do the organizing, like who sends what to who, that kind of thing. Yeah, Incantation and myself are both the organizers, so we kind of collect the info. We have it stored up uh, in a Google Doc, and then uh, we distribute the information to the individuals who are giving the gifts away. If it's a physical gift, we give them the address. If it's a Steam gift, then uh, we give them the Steam ID, and they take mm. it from there. Their basic, their only responsibility is to get the gift in by December twenty fifth. Hmm. Cool. Well, I guess you have a few more days if anybody wants to join in. Yeah, signups <sighs> in uh, November fifteenth. So get those signups in, folks. Maybe I'll participate this year. Ooh. Well, if you want to, you're welcome to. We got plenty of folks. Yeah. I'll think about One it. Time. I'll think it over. Think it over. I'd feel bad for whoever got you because you got to pay international shipping if they want to do oh, yeah. hang out so with that's you. Just, you know, the whole cost of the present is going to be swallowed up by the you know shipping. So I, I just get a box <laughs> with a note in it. You- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the card. Merry Christmas, motherfucker. And just, you know. <laughs> Azil's going to go to a granite factory or rock factory and get a $15 <laughs> lump of Pet coal. <laughs> Yeah, I could yeah. just get some badass from it. the, you know, uh, the railroad or something. <laughs> hey, some guys love trains, you know? It's, some it's guys true. do love trains, don't they? What? Some, some guys. Yeah. Some guys love trains made of furry animals. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, that's just, a whole... Let's not, let's not get into your sexual fantasies just yet, Walter. <laughs> My furry trains. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's coming to town. Choo-choo. Choo-choo, <laughs> baby. Choo-choo. It's yeah. true. Like, I didn't. I didn't redirect the question of how I've been spending my time, and it is furry trains. Open up the gates, uh, if you see what I mean. <laughs> I also like fitting all of the trains in my mouth at the same time. I like putting them, like them being inside. <laughs> That's my thing. This is really personal, man. Well, I'm traumatized now. I'm gonna need a little bit to oh. forget all this. I like the wet fur feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I should probably move on. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's move on to the goats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope everybody's still listening after that. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, we're here to wrap up, hopefully, our reread of Volume 19. As you may know, we took a few uh, episodes off to, for the reread so we could catch up on the new episodes of Berserk. That's kind of how I'd like things to go, uh, if things are predictable in the Berserk world, is... If there's a Berserk episode, we'll be doing that. If there's not, we'll be doing a reread or something else. So, Anyway, uh, we last left Volume 19 right as Guts is facing off against the uh, goat pseudo-apostle. And it's uh, actually a pretty short fight. It's only like five pages, but it's very memorable, right? Like This is one of the ones, particularly for this section, that really stuck out to me. And I guess it's because 
the way he engages it, right? Or the, the kind of attacks the goat uses. It's an uncharacteristically fast enemy for Berserk. Yeah. For, for Guts to fight, you know? For such Ro- a big enemy, yeah. Yeah. Um, Roshin was fast in her own regard, but not quite like this. Like, constant movement, constantly quick attacks, where Guts mm-hmm. can't even keep up with uh, the enemy. Yeah, it's a, di- so, yeah, it's, a- it's a different type of speed, I think, where Roshin just did, like, like a plane, basically. She just did this big, you know... Uh, swooping, you know, blows, whereas this guy is just jumping around everywhere, so it's very much more dynamic. Like, like actually, mm-hmm. you know, mountain goats jumping around, you know, a mountain face. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's an uncharacteristically fast thing, and so Guts is at a disadvantage. Um, so unable to keep up with his movements, he has to change his tactics. But what I do like about the back and forth we have in these panels is how Guts will be firing his um, repeated crossbow repeater and he'll basically kind of like a um what's the word for the the bullfighters right where he has to dodge yeah the matador yeah and spin around real quick you know pivoting on his ankle and continuing to fire behind him but even then it's not not quite enough he does that a few times and realizes that it's not quite gonna work um mira does his thing he does it repeatedly in this section of the series um there's a panel where the goat's horns are just inches away from gut's face he does that more than once here. Uh, I think it's to emphasize like the closeness of the danger, right? There's that f- another frozen moment in the action. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also does this, it effectively, you know, makes it show, it shows you how weak Guts is or how vulnerable Guts is rather that he already has lost one eye. And Mira is like threatening the loss of another eye here in this particular moment and in another moment as well. Just imagining right. how like. Well, yeah, it means um, that even just a scrape would be enough to finish him, you know, like to make him yeah. useless almost. Yeah. What? In a lot of ways, I feel like this is some of the most nerve-wracking fights in the series happen in in this particular part of the manga. And I think that is part of it, where he does do the thing again with the um, Mosgus' uh, uh, disciples, disciples yeah. where they do that. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. that always makes me nervous. <laughs> just, I think it's also a reminder that, you know, even against these pushover enemies i you know he's still very weak like it's a reminder that guts is human and so that even this guy who's not even a full-on apostle or anything like a bad blow mm-hmm. could be enough to end guts so you know uh, for all his prowess and his strength and his determination and everything he remains like it's a perpetual reminder that he's just one guy against monsters and that just one failed dodge or parry or anything could be the end of him Right. Well, this fight is also a reminder that Guts is still, you know, using some of his new equipment. You know, the turnaround moment of the fight is when Guts realizes he can't uh, do much with his crossbow, so he decides to use the the bombs. So he pulls them out, thinks it's worth a try. Uh, you know, he remembers he has to wait three seconds before, but there's this really great moment where he strikes it on his wrist or the the, uh, the cannon arm, and it's kind of the blurred effect of the horns approaching him as Guts remains motionless at that moment. Tosses them and then, like, he immediately hides. He doesn't quite know the range of this explosion yet, you know? He kind of looks fearful for a moment. Yeah. Doesn't know exactly what's going to happen with these, how powerful they're really going to be. But they prove, of course, very powerful indeed. That half of the guy's face is blown off. You know, one thing about the horns, you know, that sh- shot where you see the horns coming at him, which is almost, like, it's an almost 3D effect to me. But I think mm-hmm. you know, part of this fight, like you mentioned, is very short. But I found, you know, like the art work in this section is, you know, amazing to me. 
like from the starting shot to the one of the goats, you know, roaring or whatever. It's done in this kind of hyper-realistic art style. And uh, I think one of the best stuff Mira's produced, you know, even when you see the goat jumping around, like we said, it's a very dynamic fight. And I think Mira really rendered it beautifully where you see this shot, for example, of the arrows being fired and the goat, you know, dodging them right and left. And you see his various postures that he does on the page, you know, superposed. And um, I think all that stuff is really, really beautifully rendered. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I, I definitely agree. I think between around volume 19 to volume 21, I think is when it was like really, really something. Yeah. Yeah. And he also was spitting these out very regularly, you know, yeah. without, without, a, without a break at all during this whole section. So pretty impressive. Very so uh, Guts finishes the job after the guy's down for the count, chops off his head, and the horns kind of spiral out. I love that, that bloody spiral yeah, effect. Yeah, it's amazing. As the DS comes down. Really great. And mm. he admires the, the bombs, thinking, ah, oh, pretty, it worked, came in pretty handy. Pretty nifty. And look at the grin on his face. Um, and of course, the, the goat transforms back. You see the old man's head come off there as well, next to the old goat mask. Yeah. Reverting to the human form. And as Guts leaves, yeah, the Behirid Apostle, uh, it looks a little nervous, right? Like the this is a new, a new factor in my plans I, I, for things. I don't know if he looks nervous to me. He's just observing, you know, like just he's been observing all along. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can. It doesn't look, doesn't look calm to me. I mean, it's it's the I don't know. What? I think it's something of the way the eyes are drawn. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just. To me, it's just looking, you know, observing like he's been okay. doing. But, I mean, I, d- I don't think you can derive that he's nervous from this shot, but just me. Sure. And we're back to the heretics that are still uh, attacking the Holy Iron Chain Knights. Um, this is really only a, a page or two worth of an exchange, but it, it the Farnese has to be dragged away from the front line. Dazan puts his foot down and says, we need to r- retreat. This is no good. Uh, but she has to be dragged away by her subordinates. And she's wondering where Serpico is. Um, I really like this, the the visual. Uh, it almost has color to it. I know it's black and white, but because they mentioned the sunset in this approaching scene with Serpico and Guts, you just really, the way the shading is done along, along the rock, I always imagine this in my head with color. It's very effective with the sunset in the mm. background, all the shading. Yeah, I think the, sh- the anyway. way the shadows are rendered, especially you see, you know, on the rock face uh, from Sepico's, you know, feet and hand, I think it really adds a lot to the effect, you know, some kind of death. And, you know, just the way, you know, you see the rock closest to him is really bright and then it becomes, you mm-hmm. know, darker. I think that really gives, uh, you know, you can, you can visualize the sunset like that. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like a etching from Doré, makes me think. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. So this is one of the more memorable fights in the series, I think, because of how Miura has incorporated, you know, the geography or not the geography, the landscape itself and the tactics into the battle. It's not just a, you know, gut swinging around. He actually has to put thought into every movement mm-hmm. that he makes because Serpico has kind of funneled all the actions guts can make into this narrow corridor yeah what i like is uh, that it's a very uh how to say it's a pivotal moment from serpico where he really mm-hmm. comes you know he was just his guy and now he becomes you know like a serious opponent and somebody to you know i wouldn't say that puts a name on his face but it's when 
You know, if he really gets on the map, he's not just uh, fun as his lapdog or a guy, whatever, joking around. He becomes a serious opponent. And it's kind of a continuation of uh, his little uh, exchange of blows we've got in volume 17. So that's a pretty nice mm -hmm. moment, I, I think. Yeah, and also, it's like, it's like, as you say, it's kind of Serpico emerging from the shadows because as we later see in some of their flashbacks, um, he would spar with Farnese's opponents, but he would never use his full strength or use his full abilities. He always wanted to make it look like it was ending in a draw. So he's always kind of holding back, kind of always holding back what his you know full range of abilities are. And here, he has to use everything he can to get the advantage on Guts. So it's kind of the first time we're seeing his, his full uh, range. Yeah, he's pushing himself. Right. All that I like... I'd also... You, now, go ahead. I was just going to say, for all of that, I like that it starts with a funny moment where Sapiko is just like, oh, I've been waiting for you, a Gus impassively <laughs> just shoots at him, <laughs> shoots arrows at him. So it's, you know, I mean, those little moments of uh, humor, uh, I think, make these scenes great because, you know, like there's mm. a lot of tension, but r right away, you know, it shows also how Gus approaches things, like very uh, mm -hmm. pragmatically, that kind of stuff. I, I think it's great. Yeah, also, the, the fact that Serpico might have expected there to be an exchange before they started the fight, and he's just sitting there as he sees Guts draw, and he goes, huh? And then he has to hide immediately after the, yeah. the arrows fly. Um, <laughs> it, it remains, this whole, this whole scene, you know, the comedy is there, and that, that's awesome. I love that, that we get a little bit of uh, layer to their interactions, but this scene remains the best insight into... Serpico's tactical mind. Like the way he approaches combat is different from Guts. He approaches combat intellectually instead of by instinct. And he's also playing mind games with Guts throughout this fight. So the, they're almost complete opposites in terms of how they approach combat, but, you know, equally, not equally effective, but effective in, in different ways, I guess. Yeah, Serpico is a really good tactician, basically. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> unsure of how to progress here because it's this small exchange so i, I think we, right we could do like this one deserves to go page by page but i mean that's just me but sure what i wanted to say was um we, we mentioned how guts uses the crossbow arrows and then serpico has to hide but even on top of that guts then just casually drops the bombs and then we see we hear serpico scream right as it explodes so guts just like didn't even give a shit not even gonna waste any time with this guy, not even going to make it a fair fight, really, just <laughs> using his whole arsenal, just in case, yeah. to blow this guy off of the cliff. But but then, it does a great part, is that he throws it, he waits a bit, nothing, he progresses, and then, you know, the sword uh, comes from the smoke, and Subco's actually managed to escape by going below the cliff, and he tried mm -hmm. to actually get at, you know, uh, I mean, off guts by surprise. So that that shows us. I think that's the moment that shows us uh, it's about to get serious. And Mira uses a very effective technique here, where he cuts to other characters, so that you know there's that tension of the fight being held like that while we see the progress uh, for Isidro, Casca, and Nina. So yeah, very effective. Well, in, in in addition to that, the fact that the fight is happening just behind where Isidro and yep. Casca and Nina are because Nina hears the explosion. She wonders what that sound was behind them, but you know, there's no time. They're advancing. Um, one thing I didn't notice before reading, doing this reread is that, you know, 
Um, Isidro is helping Casca, you know, on the cliff, but actually Puck is also <laughs> serving as a guide mm-hmm. here. So Casca's reaching out to Puck, um, and, uh, trying to help him and help her in his own way, along mm-hmm. with Isidro as well. Yeah. Puck makes her advance while Isidro tries to prevent her from falling off the cliff, you know, pretty much. <laughs> it's a, it's a two man job. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, Casca and Puck's first little scene together. You know, they, they kind of met earlier in the cave, but this is, they're, they're finally interacting for the first time as characters. Yep. And that ends up with Puck in uh, Casca's mouth as she tries to eat him. Yeah. <laughs> Once she finally grabs him, she just you know, tries to eat him. Right. So they get to the end of the cliff and there's a rope that they have to uh, rappel down, but Nina's not confident that she can do it, so... Um, Isidro suggests they could you you could use it as a bungee cord, uh, which is another little reference Mira makes to modern times. I'm imagining bungee cords wouldn't have existed in a medieval time setting. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a little inside joke from Mira. Um, so then he's still deciding, you know, how he can how we can make this work when we go back to the scene uh, with Serpco and Guts when we realize that he can't make he can't he's preventing Guts from drawing his sword. Yeah, and. He lists all the things that are working against guts here, you know, including his the angle he's at, uh, his physique, uh, his te- his technique, and his equipment are all allied against him in this fight. Yeah, so f- I actually wondered while I was reading this was there's probably a good reason, and I was not thinking of it. Like why guts just doesn't pivot so that his you know his real arm is facing towards Serpico, just you know do like a from side to side pivot, but probably because the Dragon Slayer would then restricting his movement as well yeah he can't draw it like if he, his back is t- towards the cliff face he can't draw it effectively so it's kind of no not draw it I mean because right now he's defending with his artificial arm why he can't pivot so that his real arm is facing him yeah I know but what what I meant is okay I mean, it doesn't really matter but yeah if he pivoted in the other direction first he couldn't protect himself as effectively because his real arm would be uh, facing the enemy but also like right now, you see, if he draws the Dragon Slayer while it's facing towards the, you know, uh, emptiness, he can easily take it out. But when it's towards the cliff, the Dragon Slayer would be, uh, you know, like very close to the cliff. So he mm-hmm. wouldn't have probably not enough space to even draw it effectively, you know, just pull it out as he does. Yeah. No, I know he can't draw. I just wonder why. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. It just. Guts had one additional option here that he doesn't use, I think. Anyway, Guts is realizing that Serpico is not just a pushover, and he actually says this is actually a tougher fight than uh, with the goat previously. Yeah, because he's not uh, just cunning, but he's also a very good swordsman, fast and skilled. Right. We cut back to Isidro and realize he's uh, dropped the girls down by tying the rope around them. Uh, and then the Behirid Apostle is uh, watching them, knowing that Casca is, I'm assuming, key to what's to come. Yeah. Well, he can probably feel she's branded if just that, you know. Yeah, simply that. Uh, we cut to the new episode, The Cliff, and Serpico kind of reiterates the situation with all the disadvantages Guts has. Um, I like at this moment here that Guts is... Uh, Distressed by how uh, effective Serpico is here, but then he has a moment where he thinks about Casca and he knows he's determined to move forward. It's almost like Serpico mind reads him, or at least he detects something in, in Guts that makes him comment exactly on that. Mm. 
you know, asking him if he's concerned about the girls, uh, which he uses to disadvantage by kind of lying and saying that they're trapped ahead, which, you know, he admits is a lie, but he's playing mind games, trying to make guts worked up, which uh, works against him because <laughs> that's actually where the, the, the break in the fight is. When well, Guts is down, he pushes back. I mean, yeah, when Guts is in the corner, that's when you gotta be worried. Well, the thing is, uh, like, it's a it's a good strategy, but I just don't think it's effective against Guts. You know, he's not, of course, he's not the kind yeah. of guy that loses his nerve. So yeah, I like again it that has kind of we, the opposite effect. We get to see that you know, shot, blood shot. You see a hand grabbing a sword. You see Serpico's reacting to it, and then cuts to. <laughs> Finally, they're slapping people, which I find, you know, in a way, I don't know why, but I find it a very effective cut, you know. It, like, it makes so much sense to me, but I can't explain why, you know. Well, it's it just a, like I a mean, cinematic it, feel to it. It's very visual. Like, it goes from this kinetic energy to a completely yeah. different type of kinetic energy, which is uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. compelling. Well, it's also just a really cool moment. Just like it's guts, that look in his eye, the way that, the way that, that panel is drawn is really cool. Like, he's turning the tables, you know, he's raising his hand and he's about to turn the tables on something, but you don't know exactly what it is, and something's caught Serpico off guard. So it's just a great, suspenseful moment in the fight. We actually don't come back to that for a little bit, because we have this little scene with uh, Serpico finally back to the, um, I guess, the the, the the line behind the line uh, where they are assaulting the, the cave. And she's uh, slapping... She kind of like, you know, guts swings at the cushion and, and cut through five guys at once. You know, she has one swing of her <laughs> mailed fist and slaps three guys in one. It's her one special swipe. move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, she's lamenting that they couldn't catch capture the Black Swordsman, which, you know, was never really their uh, their task. They were there to get the heretics. But because the Black Swordsman appears, suddenly that became her goal, even if she didn't state it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Joachim gets um, tapped by the Behirid Apostle with a little rock. He's trying to meddle with things. He knows how to play this scene. Brings Joachim down the cliffs, uh, urging him along, face to, talking face to him. Face to Nina. Right. Which is very effective. So, <laughs> yeah, these two haven't been together, of course, since the... Uh, the last time they were at the cave, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you know, Joachim has betrayed... Nina trying to get the heretics uh, captured by the Holy Iron Chain Knights, uh, but Nina, of course, did not even know he was alive. So well, I mean, she has a dramatically different reaction. Yeah, and the thing is that he, you know, he fell off a cliff. So and that's because of her. So you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not sure who betrayed the others first. You know, it's just it's kind of a shitty relationship to have. Sure, mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, um, in terms of what his reaction is, I imagine. And it kind of follows his character as well. As he he feels probably some guilt for the the role that he has here. Of course, but my point yeah. is that he has reason to fear her. Oh well, sure. Whereas she was crazed before, and now that she got uh, a good slapping, you know, she got back to <laughs> her senses. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I can understand his reaction. Last time she saw her, uh, she was trying to get him killed. Right. True. So Joachim goes and calls the Holy Iron Chain Knights down, uh, and Nina just looks shocked there, a uh, genuine reaction of shock. Yeah, that she's alive, and actually she seems, I mean, we, we don't see it yet, but she's probably happy that he's alive, and might even have apologized, but he doesn't leave a time to do that, and runs to the Holy Iron Chain Knights to get her captured. Right. 
So, <clears throat> Asidro is stuck on the cliff, and Casca was in the middle of rappelling down, but she sees what's happening down there, and she uh, unties herself and makes her own way down, which is one of the uh, handful of times we see Casca utilizing her agility to come down. Yeah, I was going like to say, it's a, it's a favorite moment of Casca fans everywhere. Course, <laughs> Everyone yeah. sees this goes, yes! <laughs> yeah, pure reflexes, and she manages to get down without hurting herself. So it's pretty nice. And I like mm-hmm. that Isidro takes the moment to pause, like, wow, you know, <laughs> she's really impressive. What What's going yeah. on? Yeah, it's just... <laughs> also worth noting that I know Isidro had given Nina his jacket. That's the last we'll see of this jacket. <laughs> no R. more. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. So uh, Isidro tries to take things in his own hands and uh, jump off, which his plan, I don't know that it was ever really going to work. He tied the rope around his waist and then just jumps off the cliff. But it's actually to his benefit that he got tangled because <laughs> if he had landed with that, it would have just like pulled him in half. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Well, he tried the bungee cord and, you know, before he started. <laughs> yeah. He, he ended up doing the bungee himself. Yeah. Uh, the notable thing here is that Farnese notices uh, the girl, Casca, uh, of course, that she was with Guts. So she realizes there's a connection there. Although she doesn't act on it until later, uh, she makes a note of it there. Mm. And we're back to Guts and Serpico. Uh, we see that that flash of uh, the hand was Guts grabbing the Serpico's sword with his real hand, which Serpico says was uh, a mistake. But no, Guts is able to smash the sword with his fake hand. Oh, so it's a pretty great moment. Serpico thinks it's just stupid because he can just slash his fingers off by pulling his sword back. But then Guts shows him that he his hold of the sword is so strong that Serpico actually can't put it back. And then he mm-hmm. smashes it with his artificial arm, which is a pretty great scene. <laughs> I actually love Guts' face on that as he's about to smash it. <laughs> it looks so fucking smug. He was like, he actually, <laughs> he reminds me of Kenshiro from Hukutonoken in this scene where he's just look <laughs> like that sense of superiority. He's re- like, he's looking at a squirming bug about to crush him. You know, It's amazing. You're already yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He's like, you're already fucked, man. <laughs> and then, you know, after he smashes the sword, then he shoots arrows at him again, <laughs> which is just, you know, but what's great. Point blank. Yeah. yeah what's great is that even at, at the, you know, like in these conditions, Serpico manages to react, dodge, the arrows going back, you know, going down the cliff, and he manages to grab uh, one of the bombs, throw it at Guts, and uh, escape from behind while Guts protects from the blow. So it's actually, you know, <clears throat> I mean, just in that short sequence, it shows that it kind of reminds me of Silat, is that he's very versatile, mm-hmm. you know, he can adapt very quickly to situations. So again, I mean, it's not unlike Guts himself, but it goes to show that he's really. Uh, a very good fighter, pretty much. Like even when something unexpected happens, he doesn't just stand there and get killed. He can react, dodge, parry, escape, and you know, uh, get out alive. Yeah. Right the, before, a, I was just Go gonna ahead. say it's a real treat when you get to see two great improvisers fight in this series because <laughs> that gives Mira a chance to shine. I think in his like unpredictability, t- uh, writing about that sort of thing. So yeah, good stuff. Yeah. The number of compressed actions that happen on these two pages are pretty impressive. You know, Guts, from, from Guts firing the first arrow, a Serpico, you know, drops his sword and swoops down the cliff. You know, mm-hmm. he grabbed the bomb. He actually lit the bomb before we see it because it explodes in midair. Yep. 
you know, as right as Guts sees it, he has to deflect. You know, the three mm-hmm. seconds have already passed at that point. I thought right. that was pretty cool. And, you know, of course, uses that explosion as a moment to escape. Yeah. What, what I like is that Gus just comments that he's cunning like a fox and just goes <laughs> on his way. And meanwhile, we see Serpico, who's like sweating so much and saying, oh, God, I'm really like pushing my luck with this. And it's, it's interesting <laughs> that he, he explains that he, he's, you know, he went at it more seriously than he usually does and kind of reflects on, I think it's the beginning of his reflection towards his relationship to Farnese where he's really willing to put himself in danger and act foolishly kind of uh, just because she's mm-hmm. distraught by guts. That's, you know, there's some things that come into play later on. Yeah. Yeah, I like that it ends on a, on a, on a serious note for him because you know, otherwise it would be another, you know, he scraped up my shoe moment, which was great in volume 17, but, you know, he does end on a serious moment reflecting on himself, yeah. like you say. And then we have this enigmatic scene where Guts comes back or catches up to the very, you know, disappointed uh, Isidro, you know, ashamed that he was not able to complete his task. You know, Guts picks him up by uh, his strap of teeth and his bared teeth. And, you know, you have kind of a moment here where, you know, I always think of Gambino in this moment where mm-hmm. the, the look, it's a look in Isidro's mm-hmm. face. You know, he, he knows that he could, he could be about to be hit by this guy and Guts restrains himself, you know, refrains from actually hitting him. You know, there's no, there's no words here. I also like that. There's no exchange mm-hmm. necessarily. There's no, oh, he does say, I'm sorry. I guess yeah. that's all that's said, that's said in the scene. But the rest of it is conveyed without words. Yeah, I, I like that. You know, we, we see that he's just, still just a kid. He's got tears in his eyes. And you, yeah, you yeah. can tell Guts, you know, was about to hate him or something like that. But then he just relents because he knows it's, it's not his fault. You know, I mean. Because Guts is such a monster, man. He just kills kids. He's just, <laughs> a, just what a what an evil person. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to say this is such a good scene for people to look at it for all those guys that are like, oh, I just want the Black Swordsman back, man. Let's just get him killing people. And like, this isn't what it's about. It's about scenes like this where you see Guts yeah. like reflecting and realizing like, I, you know, it was really my fault or, you know, blaming himself probably. It's kind of hard to say, but that's what I like about this. Well, no, it, kind of ambiguous. more than that, like rising above his own upbringing, rising above right. the trauma of his life to, the cycle. to be the better man, you right. know, to not be a jackass, terrible yeah. person. You know, the thing is, so. even uh, like in the Black Souls Monarch, when Gus was, you know, in full asshole mod, he's still <laughs> like, I mean... He didn't go save Vargas because that would have been reckless, but he still avenged his death and he still felt bad about it. And he, mm-hmm. you know, tried to save Theresia. He actually saved her life. Uh, you know, he felt bad when Colette was, you know, uh, possessed and killed and that kind of stuff. So, you know, and same for Puck, who he saved every time. So even though he was kind of a dick uh, in the way he related to people, he was still not... Like, Gus was never fully evil that kind of thing i mean it's just a, of course a misrepresent- it's never inhuman yeah it's just a misrepresentation like you know it's a you know i mean i think it said it all that the black souls monarch ends up with gus crying you know that's how the thing ends right so i mean if you mm-hmm. if you don't get the character by that point it's just that you haven't been paying attention to the story i think <laughs> just yeah mm-hmm. and it ends with guts on the cliff side i like that looking over that scene as the Holy Iron Chain Knights return to the tower and he's back to 
pretty much square one by the turn of the page. Yep. You know, returning to the tower where he began his, you know, Albion journey. Yep. Uh, and his plan is basically let's go get <laughs> storm the tower. <laughs> well, that's the, you know, that's the kind of plan we like. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Plus, it's a dramatic look. It's just a one little panel, but I love the first panel of this this new episode, Pap- Captive, uh, with the tower in the background, kind of the wind storming around it, and you know, got the cape flowing behind him. Yeah, it's, the depth of it. It's an iconic. Shot. Yeah, there's a kind yeah. of symmetry to it. We've got head being aligned with the tower. It's very, mm-hmm. yeah, very nice. Mm-hmm. And it happened off of off of the screen, but Isidro is now in his full on Isidro garb that he'll have the rest of the series. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I'm yeah. pretty sure it's the same costume he currently has. A jacket that will become very stinky, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> well, he's been washed by Farnese. I think we touched so, on. Yeah, you can tell. Oh yeah. That's true. I don't want to. I don't want to knock Farnese's laundry skills because she yeah. clearly she clearly cares about it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> As we can tell. She's having dreams about doing laundry. That is extreme, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, she just she's always wanted to be a housewife. You know, that's a secret dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Laundering for them all. Good time. <laughs> it's a. Of course, it's a different scenario, but, you know, in this situation, Guts was content to move on ahead by himself, but he ends up joined by companions. And I was reminded of uh, later in the series when, you know, he might have been content to move by himself, but he ends up with companions as well, even though he needed them more at the time. He, he needs these people now, but he doesn't realize it, of course. And yeah. So he ends up with companions anyway along his journey, even though his intent was to storm the castle or the tower by himself. Luca for her own reasons to to rescue Nina and Isidro for his own reasons to complete his training with guts. So he's not going to let that slide. Uh, Can I just interrupt for a minute? I know we're trying to get through this fast, but I just wanted to say, like, I know we were talking about the art style and stuff. I don't know what Mira's doing in this particular volume, but he's given guts some serious, like, Beyonce angles. It is really like <laughs> it's kind of interesting to look at because uh, you know comparing di- to different parts of the series, he always draws his face differently. But this is like where he's, I think, objectively very handsome in these parts. Oh yeah. I just wonder what he was thinking when he was going through. Well, you know, I mean, I can't. I'm not the most well placed to judge, but I think Guts is pretty much always handsomely depicted. You know. Oh, you! <laughs> you always think Guts is handsome. No, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. Yeah. He's, you know, like, he's a main guy, so he's got to be, you know, he's got to be badass. No, I, I got you. But, yeah. Yeah, it's just a random observation. Like, he's getting the best the best of the best angles in these Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I do agree that, yep. like, that shot where he's talking to uh, Luca and, you know, he's at the center and, you know, yep. broad-shouldered, you know, like, you know, big chest and everything. You can tell he's a, he's a man, you know. Yeah, I, I just had to comment on it because I was like, wow, this is like, Nero is just like, come on, let's do this, guys. And there's also the, the fact that uh, I, I think over the years, because Mira's used so many angles, you know, these days he really tries, he goes for daring stuff. Like he's, he's, he's done mm-hmm. some stuff where he's basically, the camera's up the nose of the character and you're like, dude. Like, and, and, you know, it doesn't look stupid, which is amazing to me because like who would you know like what kind of angle is that but yeah he really manages i mean i think you know one of these days we'll have one like from within the ear of the character or something like that so <laughs> straight out of the ear hole. Well, i mean yeah, <laughs> yeah I, no i say I, I appreciate i really actually appreciate that he tries to like uh you know mix it up so much so that he, you know not just because you you get a lot of uh 
artists who will always go for that shot, you know, the epic shot of the guy from the front, mm -hmm. and you get uh, women from the back that show their asses or that kind of stuff. But yeah, <laughs> you are really tries to, you know, go for some daring angles and, you know, strange stuff that not easy to pull off. And I really appreciate no. that. I, I give you a lot of credit for yes. that. You know, stuff that you, you gotta really understand the anatomy of the characters well in order to represent it properly. So yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, he's pushing the envelope. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Please keep going. <laughs> no, no, that's good. The one thing I would add to that is like I was certainly never an artist or even anything that compared to that. But I, I did draw a lot in high school and middle school as well. Um, and I did always notice that it's really easy to fall back into like comfortable angles to draw characters. Like you, I usually had like one or two that I was really good at drawing. And if you change that perspective just a little bit it would be really wonky looking like i don't know uh grail if that's something that you've encountered as well like is there absolutely a, a, a certain perspective that works best for your hand that you're most comfortable with and, and you will fall into patterns for sure and yeah. i think mirror is a great example of you know you always got to be pushing yourself to do better and after all these years he's still doing that and i really respect that yeah so what's also notable about this scene here as we depart for the tower is that uh luca Tell, instructs her uh, companions to stay behind and they stay from that perspective looking at the tower you know throughout this so we have these kind of outside observers that Mira will come back to as the tower starts falling I just like that he set that perspective up you know at this point yeah and they are not it's at nice. all uh, optimistic about uh, Luca Guts and Isidro's chances of making it back that's also sure. interesting like to, to have that outsider point of view was like man they are so fucked yeah, hmm. and he asked even before the supernatural shit starts going down. So yeah, they just it's pretty you know, incredible. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they look nervous and everything. I think it's just again, it's well rendered. Uh, I mean, one of these things Mira will do that it's not even necessary to have it, you know. But he shows it, and mm -hmm. it, you know, just those you know uh, six little panels serve to uh, highlight the dynamics within that group, you know. Who is leading and the others, you know, and there's the ones that get called stupid, the ones that spring for their return. So, yeah, very interesting. <clears throat> As we get closer to the tower from this perspective, Guts is thinking about Skull Knight's words from volume 18. Wow, there's no way to stop what's coming. Yep. I like the sense of foreboding as we see uh, atop the tower as the Behirid Apostle atop the Falcon symbol. And we see him actually from a distance. If you look at the very, very top of the, the apex of the tower in a previous panel, you can just make him out yeah, there at the top a little there. dot. Yeah, and then of course we see it full-blown in, in the other panel. With the moon behind him. That's a lot of cross-hatching. Yeah. <coughs> that must have taken off. His wrist might have hurt after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did... Taking a... He did. Go ahead. He did comment on his wrist hurting. So, in the magazine's yeah. oh, right. in the magazine's comments, he actually said that he was a like a cross-hatching matching uh, machine, and that his uh, wrist was yeah. so sore he thought he had broken a finger. So, oh jeez. Oh, that's right. We're right, right at the point where we where where we are in the the comments. We're I guess we're cut. We're catching up to it. Is what we're nineteen ninety nine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we're catching up to that point. Cool. Uh, so we, we pan over to inside the tower. You know, Puck has gone on ahead. Um, I guess I guess Puck stayed, stayed with Casca was the was the deal. I guess I missed that in the the comments. I guess maybe we didn't know until just now. Is that Puck stayed with Casca throughout this time? Yeah, he actually. Yeah. I don't okay. think he stayed with her, but 
as he got captured, uh, he followed from afar, you know. So got he it. got he yeah. basically got into the tour uh, in advance of Gats and the others because he like he didn't stick with the guards and everything. But yeah, he followed from uh, he he was with Casca the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's a couple interesting things about Puck's observations here is that he notices that he can be seen. You know, the guards point him out and he has to hide real quick, which is, he's not used to that happening. Um, and he's, he detects there's something something wrong, something amiss within the tower itself. Uh, and of course, we've commented on it before, uh, but it's, it's you know, in, in loose terms, it's the, it's the powder keg that's about to explode. It's the, the malice of the whole area that's ready to pop, basically. Yeah. It's obscuring everything for him. Yeah, the thing is, like, in a temple like this, a religious temple, uh, he would usually not be seen because, like, the people would be so absorbed with their religions that they would refuse to believe he exists. But it's not the case here. And yeah, like you said, I think it's because the whole place uh, is seeping with evil. So, mm-hmm. And with the Ominous Sevens coming and everything, I think that all adds up to them being uh, more... Uh, Acute, at, perceptive. Yeah, perceptive towards the supernatural. Right. Yeah, he calls it a stifling feeling around the whole tower as he's flying around. Mm. And then we go into uh, the, the nice claustrophobic cell with Nina and Casca, who are now wearing matching garbs in the cell. Yeah. And we're introduced to, uh, not introduced, we have more of uh, Nina's anxiety as she's. Uh, concerned about what's going to happen to both of them, and it's kind of yeah. And the sound effects is people's, you know, uh, yelling and you know, uh, planes mm. in the in the background. So you you can tell also probably people being tortured or that kind of stuff. So yeah, <laughs> I can understand her being scared. And of course, Casca is just you know reassuring her, patting her on the head, um, and playing with her hair mm. with the, the stick in her mouth. Obviously, not able to take the scenario seriously. But uh, <clears throat> Nina gets frustrated with her, but immediately consoles her. She's kind of back and forth I think at the end of her This rope. scene is really important for Nina's character because it shows how conflicted she is. You know, she tries to get Casca to use her magic, even though she knows she's not like, you know, she can't use any magic. She's just mindless. And, you know, then she gets annoyed at her, pushes her back, but immediately regrets it. Then she doesn't, she refuses to, you know, console her and she says it's all her fault. Everything bad happened since she came and everything. And then immediately she embraces her and apologizes. So, like, throughout the whole scene, you can tell she's a very, very conflicted, a very weak uh, morally and uh, intellectually. And I think, you know, I remember you, you often said how you liked uh, Corcus because he was like a man, you know, a man of the people, you know, like... He wasn't a superhero like everybody else, basically. He's just Joe Blow, you know, trying to get by and everything. And, yeah. and Nina's exactly that kind of character as well. She's really the, the weak person, you know, the one who wouldn't have, you know, said anything as the Nazis came to take the Jews away, you know. She's that kind of girl. And when the guards come, you know, and they ask her, one of them, to, you know, uh, step forward and get ready to be tortured, and she she doesn't you know, she doesn't step forward and when they grab Casca, she calls off her names and stops herself and she's afraid. She tries to tell them but she can't because she lacks the courage. And finally they take her mm-hmm. because she didn't speak up and that you know, the actor's torture yeah, the torture actually <laughs> says he really disrespects uh, you know, people like her, he finds her disgusting. So you know <laughs> the whole scene is about 
what kind of person she is and the kind of courage she lacks, you know. She's like the absolute opposite of guts, who's brave above all, mm -hmm. and she's just, you know, a coward, a consummate coward. Yeah. Well, more than guts, I think, you know, Luca is the direct parallel here because Luca has the courage to let, you know, to stand up for her convictions. Whereas Nina has observed Luca doing such things and she tries to emulate that, but she just doesn't have the courage to follow up yeah. on it. And so she just kind of is an empty vessel that she, she wants to do good things and then realizes she, you know, her natural, <laughs> uh, moral uh, standard is not high yeah, enough she, to she, actually pull them she off. She just lacks the metal, you know, the moral fiber needed. Yeah. She just, she doesn't have it in her, even though she knows she should and she knows it's good. And, right. and I think, you know, even after she's taken away, she calls to Casca and then as they take her away, she uh, sinks back on it. Like, oh, she's scared. She couldn't say anything. She wanted to abandon Casca and save herself. And, she, she, you know, even though she's about, she's going to die because she's sick. She's got syphilis. So she knows she's disgusting. And she tries, she tries, you know, so hard as, as they tell her that, you know, they need to know who's the witch. So she knows if she tells them it's Casca, she'll be spared. And then she tries, you know, thinking of Luca, she tries to be courageous. She says if she only could just have this little grain of courage, it would be enough. Mm -hmm. And then as the doors open <laughs> to the torture cham chamber and she sees all these bodies and people being tortured, she immediately herself you know out of fear and well she doesn't just she passes almost passes yeah. out has to be caught by the yeah. car and then she pees herself so it's <laughs> yeah. like a double whammy yeah and she just starts yeah. you know squealing but you know again i mean and she she almost loses her mind but again i mean it's easy as a you know graphic novel reader you see that and you say ah oh, you know this girl whatever and you, you've got guts and even the you know what the face of whatever he stands toward but you know, like how many people actually could step into a chamber like that where, you know, basically in the, you know, in a hospital robe and just, you know, stand proudly and say, oh, I'll send nothing and everything. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. It gives us a perspective of what a standard, weak, cowardly person, you know, would be like in that state. Yeah, it's very real, you know. I think that, um, I think the story would have felt very different without a character like Nina coming in there and, I think it really forces, if it doesn't force the reader to evaluate how they would be in a scene like that, I feel like people need to, you know, read more carefully because it's, it's really, yeah, it adds a whole new dimension to the story. Yeah, again, it's some things, I think it adds, you know, like everything else, always the same thing, but it adds a lot of depth to the story, you know, to have these mm -hmm. characters decide things where, you know, it's not, you, you could have, have just guts running a corridor, killing guards and killing bigger guards and killing the, you know, final guard and then killing the boss mm -hmm. and everything. But that's just, you know, that's not how a good story is made. And, you know, here we see all these things and it, you know, really adds uh, context and perspective to the world. And, you know, it makes it seem very big and very profound, you know, even though we only get glimpses of, of what it is because we follow the story. And, Mm -hmm. Worst being said is that throughout this scene, we also see a lot of, like Mira manages to, you know, for some scenes where uh, Nina is thinking to herself, you only got her face with a, you know, white background that really focuses on her and her thoughts. But then you get these great shots of, for example, the stairs going down, you know, towards the big doors that's uh, in the shape of a mouse. It's actually based on a, a real doors of the type that exist in France and Italy. 
And, you know, that scene where you see the corpses hanging from the, you know, the ceiling, it's very, very, again, the cross-hatching is insane here. Very detailed. You see the blood, the faces, everything. It's like some kind of hyper-realistic stuff. And even when you see, you've got this scene where you see various uh, clips of torture, women with some rakes in their back, you know, uh, their, you know, breasts being whipped. Uh, some pretty crazy and disgusting tortures. So all the stuff is very nice, you know, nicely mixed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the particular instruments that's horrifying, the pear, I can't remember the full name of it, but uh, you see it in one of the last panels there yeah. as a woman's you know, bleeding. Oh, like one of the, the more horrifying instruments. Yep. The scapula of death. Yeah. Is that what it's called? I don't know. I just made up the title. That's what. No, <laughs> it's the it's called the pear of something. I can't remember what it is, but uh, yeah, because of this pear shape. Yeah, you basically you know insert it and then you open it right. and it just spreads. <clears throat> so it's a gynecological exam from hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is, all of that stuff is based on actual torture instruments. So you know. Yes. Thank you for that reminder. That's that's an unpleasant I thought. Mean, <laughs> I mean, even just the one where you see a woman sitting on a, a weight-shaped thing, and she's got weights. Uh, ho- right. Uh, the the implied the implied pain of that yeah. is nice because it's not actually showing you exactly what it is, but you get the yeah, idea. Yeah. Just you know. Yeah. yeah. And I mean. You know, I have a hard time believing people like some people did that for a living, just tortured people like that. But you know, I guess, guess they did. Good times. <laughs> yeah. Be- yeah. I like how the episode ends with just a surrounded by darkness. The doors shut. You know, and the tiny little not tiny, but smallish looking doors from a distance. Yeah, yeah. That's also very powerful. Actually, is a way you know like, these scenes become smaller and smaller. We see, we see the torture, and we end on Nina, and then that door that slams mm. shut with, you know, like just that sound effect of slamming shut is very, uh, very powerful. It's like, you know, we are never going to see her again. You know, it could, it could end like that. You know, right. it's very, very potent. That's yeah, that could have been it. it. That could have been it. And then we're uh, shown uh, the closest to the lap of luxury that uh, Albion has with the abbot himself, who I don't think we've seen much of until now. This might be his only scene. Yeah. Or one of the only scenes we have. Of yeah, him I think so. Here. You know, it's, it's always seemed kind of like Mosgus ran the show, but, you know, he's just the Inquisitor who's probably powerful politically in the Holy See, but this is the guy that actually oversees the uh, the tower itself. Yep. The monastery, I guess you should say, not the tower. Anyway, he is telling her that there's been a, a missive from the Holy Irons, uh, from the Holy See itself, uh, urging Farnese to come to be returned. But uh, not the knights themselves, but uh, just Farnese. Uh, what's interesting here is that it exposes kind of the the chain of command, the true chain of command for how things work, uh, not only in the in the Holy See, but maybe even in the world as well, is that it came directly from Vendimian. And the uh, kind of the noose around the abbot's neck is that the the provisions come from Vendimian family as well. So if Farnese, you know, defies this order, then the provisions might stop as well. So you can see the sweat on the abbot's face as he urges her to accept to mm-hmm. the decree to come back. Yeah, it shows a... Because he's not even in control. Yeah, the political power of Vendimian is very... I mean, it's uh, expounded on later on in the series, but his reach is enormous, especially within the Holy See. So, like, yeah, when he requests something, people get it done. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that they use the excuse of the heretics being subjugated, you know, as, oh, okay, your mission is accomplished. Now you can go. 
Mm-hmm. It's a fair. It's a fair reason, but obviously Farnese knows it can't be it. Yeah, and, it can't be the real well, reason. Potentially, I think she doesn't want to let the Blacksmith go. You know, that's uh, something yeah. that keeps knowing yeah. at her. Right. Um, and then Farnese, Farnese actually, he knows what's actually going on, and she, uh, and when they leave the room, she turns on Serpico and slaps him. You know, she realizes that you know it must have been Serpico that you know squealed on her about the circumstances about her, and so she. What's interesting about the scene, actually, I don't want to say too much. I don't need to read dialogue scene by scene, but what is interesting is that. The allegiance for these two isn't clearly defined yet. You know, d- despite them being constant companions in all these scenes, it's pretty clear they haven't exactly plumbed the depths of their relationship. They've just been kind of a follower and a leader kind of thing. So it goes watching out for her, but their roles are not exactly clearly defined yet. Yeah. I think they don't know much about each other, really. They're kind of closed books. I love, mm. I love that scene, you know, after she slaps him, there's a, uh, there's a scene of her where you can see she's, you know, deeply resenting him. I really like that scene mm-hmm. of her. I think she chose well who she was at the time, you know. The mm-hmm. kind of an- mm-hmm. anguish and resentment, fear, you know, easily, like, easily startled, easily turned into rage, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Not in control. She looks child- childlike in that scene after the slap. Yeah. That, that pitiful look yeah, on her face. Yeah, she looks like a, a teenager, you know. Fuck you, dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and the thing is, she she is still pretty young, you know. I mean, that at the time they were still young, and of course, uh, deep, you know, way above the head into Sarah's stuff. Mm-hmm. So. And as she turns away, she asks if Serpico hates if she hates if Serpico hates her, and he just kind of dodges the question, doesn't really address it, and she just walks on, and they don't really get into it into their relationship. It's interesting that she, how to say, reiterates that. She is his master, you know, in a very, how to say, powerful way, like very authoritative. And then she asks him that, you know, in a moment of vulnerability. So, again, I think that goes to prove your point that their relationship is still very muddled at that point. Mm-hmm. I think Serpico might understand things, but maybe Farnese has not quite understood Well, you things. know, we get to flashback later on that explains yeah. how complicated it is. I think the boss have special understanding of it but yeah obviously it's still very I mean I think to both of them it's still very unclear mm-hmm. um, I don't have a ton to say about the next few pages it's kind of all set up but we realize that Nina has emerged from the torture chamber safe except for her little finger uh, and the torturer is kind of like you know making fun of her for being so miserable, she squealed at the before they could even pull the whole nail off. Yeah, she's 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 crying so much she can't speak well. So, but I mean, again, it's what I like is that we see Farnese and Serpico, you know, uh, how to say, cross with his, with Nina and the torturers. So it's it's an interesting kind of relaying of the narrative, you know. And mm-hmm. we see Farnese and how to say, she looks uncomfortable, you know passing by Nina, who's crying, and these guys, you know, that, that makes her uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things that throughout this whole uh, part of the story, she's not, how to say, she's not comfortable with the stuff uh, Mosgus is doing, you know. And she tries to reassure us, herself and, you know, to convince herself it's the right thing to do and everything. She asks Mosgus for advice, but she's never really quite comfortable with it. And, you know, I think that also shows 
uh, that her character is not meant to be just that, you know, just a crazed person mm -hmm. watching people burn, that kind of stuff. That's not who she is. And I think it's also a sign early on that it will unravel and, you know, the true her will come forward. Mm -hmm. I like how Moscus is holding this meeting in the midst of the torture, just where we see everything happening around them. And he's just like, you know, asking, oh, how's it going? How are things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty odd. Yeah. Uh, at one point, as you said, Azil, so, so Farnese kind of raises a question. She's going to ask him something about the mission, and uh, but she ends up not asking him. And of course, we never know exactly what she's talking about, but it kind of reminded me of in Volume 18 when she asks Mazgus, you know, how they can continue uh, with faith in light of all the things that they do. And he gives her that bullshit speech about, don't question God's mission. Yep. That whole thing. It's pretty much, oh, you know, God says that I'm right, so what I do is right. God, right? The kind of bullshit uh, they used to set the time as well. So Mazgus is uh, asking her about you know the actual goings on in the cave, uh, about the people that they were that were attacking them, and she Farnese kind of believes Azan's words that it was the hallucinations uh, brought on by whatever drugs were mixed into that in that cave. Well, I don't know if she believes it, but at least that's what she says, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Well, well, she kind of doubts herself as she says it. She says those things yeah. can't exist. So I think she might be right, stuck in the middle and limbo somewhere between doubting and believing. But I, I, you know, I think basically it's a most reasonable explanation, and she's not gonna tell them that you know monsters brought it or everything. So yeah, it's it the right. thing that makes the most sense. Yeah, she can't draw attention to her firsthand exposure to such things because she feels guilty. About that as well. It's interesting is also that uh, Mosgus is very how to say he really commends her. He's like, you know, you did a really great job and everything like that. So it's you know it's interesting given his uh, tendency to how to say uh, admonish people and you know feels they didn't do good or everything. But he's very very nice to her throughout this whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually even wonder if it's not if there's not a political aspect to it. But I guess we. Mm, could yeah, be. He seems like a straight shooter to me, though. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Maybe you know, just he sees her as a promising new, I, young. I yeah, I think he, I think he might just believe in her, you know, valor in this whole yeah. thing. That he doesn't know exactly what happened in the cave. He just came. She he came back. She came back with all these heretics. So for all he knows, it was a massive success yeah, instead of a bloodbath. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's also interesting that unlike the abbot who didn't care much. He actually asks about the Black Swordsman, you know. He's interesting in uh, tying all loose, you know, ends. And that mm -hmm. prompts her, as she sees Casca pass by, to mention that she was the one uh, Black Swordsman was after. Right. And he makes the connection. And immediately, kind of creepily, goes up to Casca, which his size next to Casca in that one frame is pretty off-putting. Like, he's just freaking massive. Yeah, his head is twice the size of hers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually very... It's pretty, pretty... He looks, yeah, he looks like, I don't know, a serial killer or something that thing. It's very, very unnerving, actually. Like, you know, he, mm. he doesn't have to be a monster, like, in the literal sense to be scary. Like, his face and mm -hmm. the fact he also just rips off her cross, you know, it's very, very brutal, very violent. It's a, it's a pretty scary mm -hmm. scene, you know. I mean, personally, I read that I was scared for Casca's well-being, you know, just... By that guy's presence, kind of insane maniac. Mm. I could absolutely see how, if you were reading this as it came out, you would just 
immediately assume that Moskus was an apostle. Like, regardless of everything else that's going on, like, just look at him. Because of his physicality. He just acts, yeah, his physicality, he acts quite a bit different than all the other humans. Yeah, it just, I can, I can totally see how someone might think that that was the apostle. In yeah, scenario. like expecting that to be revealed at some point, like right. secretly. Yeah. But no, he's just a dude with a weird face. Yeah. Well, you know, we we do get uh, Jose. We are shown a bit a back of the scene uh, scene where when we see him, you know, uh, prostrate himself, like, and he, he explains that he can't run anymore because his knees are in such a bad shape and he can barely walk mm-hmm. as it is. So. You know, for all his stuff and even his size and the fact he's very imposing and everything, like he's got strength. I mean, we see we see him brain a guy with his fucking book. But despite mm-hmm. all of that, yeah, we we do have confirmation beforehand that he's just human and he's got his own weakness. I mean, you know, if a guy ran away, he he couldn't catch him. That's you know, that that's sure. that at least. But yeah, he looks. That's what his torture is. Yeah, are for. but yeah, in, in any case, he does look monstrous. You know, all of that, he does look yeah. fucking. You know, inhuman. So uh, he exposes the brand on Casca's chest, and um, of course, you know, he likely doesn't recognize it. It would be interesting if he did recognize it, but he does know it is something suspicious and assumes yeah. it must be the mark of a then witch. Then again, you, you know, know, she could probably have a burst mark on the scene and say, it must be a witch. <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> Gorbachev! You, can, you, can, strange you must be a witch. Because, you know, he just, you know, it's not like he's like, okay, then we get her some special treatment. He just condemns her to be killed and tortured to death like basically every other random guy that gets dragged in there. So, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, As you do. Yeah, I, I kind of like that. You know, for all his blabbering about witches and stuff, and even when he actually gets a branded person who was actually uh, worshipped by these guys, all he does is just condemns her to be killed. You know, like, it's the Iron Maiden, but it probably could have been anything else if, you know, there was another piece of equipment available, you know, because a fresh corpse was inhabiting it. So it's just, you know, I think it also... Another day at the office. Yeah, it also shows how petty the guy is and how full of shit he is, where... He's just gonna kill mm-hmm. all of these guys, you know. That's that's just about it. He's not mm-hmm. looking for any confession or anything. He's just gonna, you know, sign the paper before we kill you, and I'll just go <laughs> eat my supper, you know, pretty much. As the Inquisitor, you're right that he might have, might be, might maybe he should be more interested in what the leader of this religious organization has to say. Yeah, he's not very, uh, just a document. Yeah, you he's know? not very inquisitive at all. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll just, all right, just kill her. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Really though, I think he, I think the Iron Maiden was used because it makes a very cool visual imagery. You yeah, know, of course. For uh, later on in the series, really, or the next few pages, anyway. Uh, as the doors close and the needles, I like this this uh, the way it proceeds. You know, the needles get closer to the brand, and while the brand is bleeding, it then begins you know bleeding more with the proximity of the needle. And then we have that scene of all the needles kind of dripping blood. You know, before they've even made contact with her, and we realize that something strange is happening. Inside the Iron Maiden is the faces come out, uh, and then there's the explosion, and this is the beginning of everything that happens from here on out. Now yeah. this is the patient zero of what happens of the operation. You know, patient zero basically. theory was recently uh, dismissed. So I heard about uh, that, yeah, but it's still it's still come on, that's in common. Yeah, research. yeah, I know, but you know, I just felt like pointing it out. <laughs> anyway, sure, sure. Uh, you know what I like about it is that as they open the Iron Maiden, you see a corpse fall out of it. You know, it's yeah. just, I mean, again, it's a detail, but, you know, I, I like that kind of stuff. It goes to show that 
these guys aren't wasting any time, you know. You, you get you see this corpse drained of blood with all the little, you know, Procton points. And we also see, we didn't mention it, but we see Puck finally catch up with Casca. He manages to get right inside the room as they're about to, you know, close the door. And uh, he's mm. just in time to witness the the Iron Maiden exploding as, you know, the mm-hmm. all the spirits of the dead who have been, you know, concentrating in this place over, I don't know, years, decades. I have no idea, but over a long time. Centuries. Yeah, they just, they awaken through the brands, they make the thing explode, <laughs> propelling some guys back, <laughs> splattering Mosgus and his disciples with blood. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and then, you, yeah, like you say, it really begins, you know, you see these guys grabbing Casca and you can tell it's about to get serious. I think this is a good point to kind of go into what these specters are and how they act and why they act the way they do, because they do act fundamentally differently than the other specters we see in the series. You know, we understand specters as the, basically the ghosts that, you know, haunt guts at night and floating through the air. He has to scatter them with the dragon slayer over and over until sunlight comes and scatters them. But these guys aren't flying around and floating. They're kind of oozing out of, you know, every surface of the tower as we, as we will go through, you know, the properties are a little bit different and they, they look a little different too. Um, I don't think Mira provides a very like detailed explanation of what these are. We kind of have to put things together by ourselves about what these guys represent, you know, I, I do think they are basically a large mass of the departed. It's not just an individual spirit wandering around. This is like a conglomeration of all the the hatred and, you know, death all gathered in one place. And it manifested through this weird puddle of ooze. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think uh, an easy comparison to make is with blood. You know, this is a place, because this mm-hmm. is torture chamber, a lot of blood was spilled there. A lot of uh, people were killed. And they were killed horribly. So all their pain, resentment, all the, you know, the bad parts that uh, you know tend to make you know evil, all this part was there. So I think, yeah, all that splattered blood and all the souls that stayed trapped within this chamber, uh, yeah, kind of concentrated over the years, decades that it went on, and um, yeah, so yeah, that's the kind of I think that's what composes this ooze and. Right. You know, that's why it's, uh, it's you know, oozing like that because of that kind of blood aspect and the concentration of it. Right. They manifested through the blood. They, they were there in spirit form and they, because of Casca's presence, they kind of, she kind of activated them and they manifested through the yep. blood. Uh, there's a moment later on, we'll get there, but I'm going to jump ahead just as an explanation. Uh, you know, Guts enters a torture chamber after this mass has already left. You know, and it, it devoured the people in the room, and he notices the whole room smells like blood. And, you know, you could kind of say that that's kind of a throwaway comment, because, of course, it smells like blood. These people were just, like, basically, you know, devoured by this monster. But I think it also might give an indication of the property itself of, you know, this this thing itself might smell or look or, you know, resemble blood. No, it's just also as the aspect of, you know, like... When Nina enters and she sees this kind of all these people being killed, but I think even if the place was empty, it would have a kind of dreadful aura, you know. And mm-hmm. I think this is also the kind of stuff like a person with a brand will uh, make come alive, you know, because these things mm-hmm. that exist in the astral realm will come forward. So it's kind of the same things that happened with a tree in Volume Fourteen, you know, where she's. Horribly right. gnarled tree, and you know, you could, could kind of see a face in the bark of it. 
with the nails and everything, and then you know, branded person comes by and the thing just comes alive. So I think it's it's kind of the same thing where yeah, you know, a lot of it's a good comparison because because that that also did not act like any other specter. It was you know, it was uh, what's the word trapped within the tree itself yeah. and it manifested through a the lot tree. Of souls so, yeah. uh, congregated, you know, there and when it activates, you know, that you know, it's like a kind of. It's not an apostle, it's not just specters, it's a kind of in-between thing where all this evil was, you know, concentrated in a place and it made it uh, particularly uh, hideous and ignominious. Mm -hmm. So we'll continue <clears throat> to the next episode. Guts is now right at the base of the tower and he's beginning to sense what's happening inside through the brand, uh, realizing that it's uh, more of a serious situation than maybe he initially thought. Uh, because of the sensation he's getting. He's getting worried, so he's trying to rush things along, and we see that, you know, manifest itself uh, as Luca tries to sweet-talk their way up, bribing the guard. I, I really, really like this. You know, she's doing it her way. Uh, she asks, yeah, she asks, leave it to me. And so Guts is waiting there patiently, and she's just about to, you know, capitalize on her little plan by bribing the guard, and Guts just jumps up there stealthily enough to evade the guard's notice. I like that. <laughs> this giant armored guy with a giant sword just That's jumps up just the windowsill. Incredible. Well, you know... I mean, it, go ahead. No, it's just ahead. because he's got the hood and he's counting the money, so he's, you know, probably blindsided a bit. But yeah, it's funny that guy just jumps by so quickly <laughs> so the guy's like, well, well what's going on? <laughs> I also like Luca's face when it's happening. It's like, dude, you're yeah. ruining this shit. She's like, fuck. And you know, she's stepping on yeah. Isidro's face. Who's trying to... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's so great. Because Gut, Guts jumped in. So Isidro's like, I got to catch up with Guts. And Luca's yeah. like kicking yeah. him in the face, rubbing her heel <laughs> on his head. It's good stuff. Uh, anyway, yeah, Guts is getting anxious about things, running ahead. I really like... We get a little bit more of the interior of Albion here. Of the tower, and I love these statues. I always love seeing these things, little details about yeah. the Berserk world. And later, we see him punch one. So I just like we're getting more details about the inside of this place before it all crumbles. Uh, back to the torture chamber, we see everyone's horrified by what's happening. Yeah, Except that the heretics look like they're riled up, <laughs> like they're excited about this. Well, I think that their salvation. I, I, I think they are not that you know. But I one thing is uh is Puck. You know, I we rarely see Puck. Uh, shitting himself and you know he doesn't look like he he looks yeah. real serious here so uh, i like that shot of him really you know in serious mode you know in panic mode even his chin's so big it's going over the frame yeah that's how serious well, the he thing is, is uh casca's <laughs> about to get killed you know by these things so i yeah. can understand it. he's not really equipped you know the bloody needle might not be enough to bloody enough to, to get <laughs> the job done at least yeah <laughs> well the heretics do look excited, particularly the woman yeah, on the left. She, I mean, yeah, they were like previously praying, asking almost. her like to praying, yeah, like, yeah, 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 because they were asking her to save them. Like you said, they're riled up, but uh, doesn't last long, you know. No, of course, yeah, <laughs> doesn't pay off the way they. Well, they you know, I, I guess for them, from their perspective, the witch, you know, their witch just you know use their magic, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, totally. I, I really love the detail on this conglomeration of ooze specters. The mouths in particular, some of the shapes the mouths make. Amira draws it in such a way you can kind of see inside the mouth the depth of it. It's really cool the way he uh, made these things amorphous and yet they re retain some of their human characteristics like the outline of the, the skull along with the mouth yeah, and the Yeah, they've teeth. got these, these gross eyes as well, you know, with various mm -hmm. shapes. It's kind of 
pretty. Yeah. It's it's you know very how to say very difficult to make art like that. You know he must have. I don't know how he did it, but you know to make mm. these deformed faces that look monstrous, but you know still reminiscent of humans. It's very and they look like really liquid oozing. That's mm -hmm. very very impressive. <clears throat> I imagine uh, like a, you could make a CG model that could do it pretty well. It wouldn't be that hard to make a CG model of these things. Yeah. I'm just not going to comment on that. Please don't bring this shit up, okay? Okay. So, um, Serpico <laughs> tries to protect Farnese, and I like that the drops uh, fall on his cheek, and he thinks it's blood at first, and looks up and sees them <laughs> gathering on the ceiling. So there's no, there's no escape here. They're trying to back up, and then they realize yeah. this, the scope of the scenario is bigger than they thought. Well, the thing is, activating. Yeah, everywhere. because the whole chamber is, you know, like uh, was covered in these torture things. They, yeah, seep from the ceiling, rise from the ground, mm -hmm. from between the stones, you know, and conglomerate. So yeah, they're pretty much, you know, uh, encircled by it. And we get an example of what happens when they make contact with these things by they basically devour them. It looks like they're kind of dissolving it, almost like acid yeah. from, from within, whatever it engulfs them. I, I love that effect, actually. The fact the guy, the torturer gets englobed and then immediately dissolved, you know, closing and all. Pretty nice. Mm -hmm. I actually wonder if, <laughs> I guess we'll get to that in a little bit with the helmets, but um, everyone's running away. Uh, we see some of the lifted faces of the, the torturers like that. We see that they're just humans, just scared humans too, even though they have those masks on for a moment. Hmm. Uh, Moscus is being dragged away himself. You know, he's, uh, still quite upset about the scenario yelling at Casca. Yeah, you can tell he's not at all, you know, uh, how to say gloating anymore. He's pretty, he's yeah. shitting himself as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, his uh, disciples try to fight it back for a little bit, and we see them scattering the forms of yeah. them pretty well. Anyway, Casca's just about to be completely uh, enveloped by yeah. these things, and she reaches out for Puck. Puck tries to help her, but she's not fast enough. Right, and it all kind of centers around this one giant uh, form itself, and it yeah. completely yeah. captures that, Casca. That takes, you know, the shape of the Iron Maiden again, you know, in its right. type of gross, right. misshapen way. And... Yeah, it, it ends like that, which is kind of a, you know, huge cliffhanger because you're like, okay, she just got swallowed up, so is she, she going to get dissolved as well? And we, mm -hmm. you know, got to wait uh, to the next volume to know, actually. <laughs> so, Right, yeah, the next volume starts with a literal bang, like the way mm -hmm. things uh, are, are revealed for that and, and, and what exactly happened inside mm -hmm. the chamber. Actually, I mean, it, it led to my misunderstanding of exactly what had happened because of that break in the, the narrative between the volumes. But it, it's pretty clear. Azil actually had to remind me of what it was that's happening. And um, we see the opening of Volume 20. And, of course, the cover of Volume 20 is Casca being protected by her child. Um, and so the child is shielding everything else from within that. So, of course, Casca is protected. Of course, mm -hmm. we knew that. But... The exact reason for that is, is explained in the following yeah, volume. Yeah, that he appears uh, in Savo in, in the nick of time. Like like he's right. done, I mean, again, it's a continuation of what he's done throughout the whole thing. Ever since she left the cave, we can we don't see a lot of it, of course. We see only a few occurrences, but we can guess that every night, every time there was trouble, the boy came in and saved her, you know, protected her from specters, from everything else. So he's just, mm -hmm. you know, a continuation of that. <clears throat> Guts is uh, infiltrating the tower, 
and spies finally gets gets his eyes on Farnese, actually Serpico and his on as well, uh, but is able to single her out uh, while everyone's trying to move to higher ground is the is the plan. But Gus able to is able to subtly or not so subtly grab Farnese uh, out of the line and pull her and yeah. throw her against the I, wall. I like how it's uh, pictured and how he does it, where he just grabs her, you know, snatches her out mm-hmm. of uh, of the group. <laughs> yeah, and Serpico notices something. Uh, and of course, we see him following later. Anyway, Guts is here to interrogate, and he's not fucking around. And you know, immediately draws his knife, and at the slightest provocation, he puts it in her mouth. You know, prepared to cut her tongue, or at least threatened to cut off her yeah. tongue <laughs> for the scenario. Uh, I like this. Farnese initially tries to put up a fight, you know, and of course, it doesn't doesn't go her way, and she immediately tries to give information. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, Guts shows restraint here. You know, it's it's yet another example of how he's not a complete monster, right? He could have easily. <coughs> Done some damage here in the scenario, and of course he doesn't, because that's not who he yeah, is. Yeah, he could have started, I don't know, but, uh, cutting her here. You know, it's it's a very tense moment for him because she knows Casca's in real serious trouble, and yeah, he threatens mm-hmm. Farnese, but he's not gonna. Like, again, he could have just cut an ear to prove his point, you know, mm-hmm. but he's not. Yeah, he's showing restraint, especially since Farnese. You know, she's not so much in cooperative as she is in denial. You know that these things shouldn't exist; it's not possible. So she's still in the same same state of mind where she's not you know she can't face the truth yet it's uh it's fuck, fucking with mm-hmm. her worldview and the ways little world she's constructed around the trauma and anxiety from childhood and so you know if that crumbles you know she crumbles and she can't exactly describe what it is in the torture chamber but you know she says this this thing shouldn't exist so guts knows that something's supernatural and he tries to hurry on his way. Yeah, he breaks. He fucking breaks the statue to get her to show him <laughs> the way. So, it, it, yeah, it does goes to show that he's not fucking around. You know, he's not. That <laughs> time is of the essence. Yeah, and then we see Serpico's boots uh, following where they were. He's in pursuit. Back to Nina. He's in pursuit, but she... he waits for his time because you know, clever guy. He knows mm-hmm. he can't interfere directly. Right. strategize so Nina is huddled in the, her cell as she hears the screams of things that are happening outside not knowing what to do she feels a uh, rumbling from under the tower it's noises from under the from under her cell I like that when uh, the cell was finally opened uh, she immediately huddles back like she wanted it to be opened she was calling for the jailer and when it's opened even then she huddles yeah. back and she's in fear of what might What's happen. What's interesting is that uh, during this whole scene, you see her blaming herself, and you know, like again, she's still, you know, what's it, trying to deal with her cowardliness, the fact she couldn't bear anything, the fact she's trying to survive, but blaming herself for only thinking of herself. So it's um, it's interesting that state of mind she's she's in perpetually, you know, not being able to accept uh, the fact she doesn't have any courage, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, her, her rescuer is uh, Luca, uh, and Jerome and Isidro have made it to her cell. So Luca's gotten what she wants from the tower, and now they have to escape. But, uh, of course, the scenario has changed. They don't know what it is, but they know something is causing commotion in the tower. I do like this whole scene for Jerome <laughs> and his personality, his his interaction with Isidro, uh, Isidro and uh, Luca in these scenes. The scene is really cool. You get a sense of his sense of humor and his personality as well, more than before. <laughs> I, I like that Isidro 
taunts him, you know, because he's like, he's saying, you know, I, I am supposed to hunt down, you know, heretics. And he's always like, oh, you're yeah. an accomplice now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, and he also like threatens to yeah. school on him to blackmail <laughs> so, him. But, you know, it's just, you know, I think it also shows how Isidro is, you know, like cunning. He's, you know, he might yeah. not be typical level of uh, tactician, but he does have his moments, you know. That's like how he always uses low tactics too, <laughs> yeah. to, to get what he yeah. needs, you know. <laughs> Doesn't hesitate to go right to blackmailing. Yeah. But of course, he kind of just swallows his pride and, you know, says maybe this is more suited for me anyway. Uh, looking very heroic uh, uh, to yeah. Luca at the moment. And she thinks maybe I misjudged him initially about the kind of person that he was. Which is a nice moment for those two, although it doesn't end mm-hmm. perfect for them. Well, again, like, you know, Jerome, he has his moments, you know, that's one of them, where he shines, you yep. know. Um, Nina, she they ask her where Elaine might be, and Nina doesn't speak up initially. Of course, she kind of is about to lie about how she doesn't know where Elaine is. But, you know, Jerome puts two and two together himself about where she might be, but it doesn't make a difference because... The scenario has changed. This is no longer a rescue mission. This is a get-out-while-you-can mission, as they see that mm-hmm. ooze kind of emerging from yeah. the darkness. One of the creepier visuals of this section. Yeah, I like how you see that dark corridor and the face that slowly appears and then fills it. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, run! Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like there's no reaction on that page either. It's just the stomach, Yeah, you just, you know, you just see the scene no coming the at them. And they're just... And, you know, again, a very... A gorgeous scene where you see the flames reflected on the stones and everything. It's a, I mean that that's that's that page, full page where you see them with the scene yeah. facing them. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's amazing. I mean I could print that and put it on my wall. Seriously, it's uh, really mm-hmm. well executed. I was just thinking like there are several uh, you know great panels in this volume that I don't think I've ever seen colorized. And I think this is a, a great source for people if they're ever looking. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening, you know, move your asses and get this done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm putting out the request now. (laughs) Uh, Guts breaks into the torture room and everyone's already been dissolved by the the ooze. I do like, yeah, another one of the times where Miura uses panels, it also uses a long two-page spanning panel. I like when he does that. Mm -hmm. He uses it to show off the the damage to the room. The scene that we've seen. Uh, multiple times before there were dead bodies everywhere. Just bones. So, yeah. Guts thinks to himself that it smells like blood. Farnes um, is uh, trying not to puke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guts wonders if Casca is one of the, is among the bodies here, and then you know he sees his helmet gliding <laughs> along. I really, I really like this immediate break in the tension yeah. as Guts Guts kind of knows what it is, or at least suspects <laughs> what it is. Picks it up by the nose and sees Puck inside. <laughs> And, you know, Puck gives him, relays him the information about what's happening and says that Casca's presence was there in that, inside the thing. So she's somehow alive in there. Um, but also, what's also great about this scene is that Farnese doesn't quite know what's happening. She sees Guts talking to something. She's wondering, what is this guy doing? Talking to himself. But then she finally sees that Puck yeah. is there. She's able to finally see him. And she's taken aback, you know, she just, time. you know, you can see her, you know, jumping back, you know, as she's surprised by it. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is a this is a big moment for her. This is the her world, you know, beginning of her world changing. About among everything else, yeah, that it's just this is one her. more crack in the you know in the little fortress she built around herself. Yeah, and she remembers too. She remembers that he was there. 
<laughs> she was straining mm-hmm. guts, straining the dragon slayer. So she's like, fuck. And as a witness, you know. <laughs> I like that, you know, what she remembers is he's, you know, uh, looking at her, you know, with his eyes, you know. It's a <laughs> yeah. His holy shit Which, expression. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad Mira got to draw that yet again. I'm sure he was happy yeah. to. Yep. So Guts calls it a calls it off for their little partnership. He's off to find Casca. Says he can do she can do whatever she wants. But I like that she ends up following him anyway, which is you know kind of the beginning of her journey as it is now. You know, chasing after yeah. Guts because he's the only one that can protect. What her. What I like is that she sees these little guys on the ground and she's like, "Oh, wait for me." But you know, again, one thing about Guts is that he doesn't just you know he could have just punched her in the face or you know killed her or whatever and run away but he doesn't do that he just he starts going because he's got no time to lose but mm-hmm. he yeah. tells her he, th- he threatens yeah, her but yeah but as he as he goes he tells her that she can you know i i take it that she could follow him you know so long as he she doesn't mm-hmm. you know uh, get in his way literally you know she could stick with him if she wanted so that's kind of an right. invitation that she she does take him up on so uh you know, again, I like that. It shows that he's not just, you know, any random guy. He he doesn't just leave her to her death and tell her that he, she falls, he, he kills her. So I think, again, that shows that his character is not a total, you know, dick. Those boots that Farnese is wearing, we see a pretty good look at them next to the ooze in that panel. Those do not look comfortable. Those look really uncomfortable. I cannot imagine running in those things for, for more well, than a little know, bit. Well, you know, armors that knights wear and everything are not comfortable things, you know. I mean, they're not, they're not, sure, it's sure. just like saying, uh, like, I don't know, even a current day soldier wearing all these military packs and stuff and everything. That's not just, you know, that's not something you would want to wear all the time, so... Well, it looks especially uncomfortable. Let me put it <laughs> I'm that gonna way. I'm going to buy them for you for your birthday, you know. There we go. Um, we go to the chamber room where we initially had seen Mazka, you know, prostrating himself. We're back to this big yeah, chapel, room. Yeah. And all his, his, right, his disciples are, you know, barricading the door, doing their best to defend Mazka to the last. But, you know, they know it's not going to hold long. And Mazka is basically preaching, you know, to this giant thing. As it pours through the walls in this very dramatic fashion, as the bricks kind of tumble out from the wall. Yeah, and he's basically saying, "Oh, it's okay to die anyway, you know." Mm-hmm. I'll die for our faith. And uh, then the Behirid Apostle makes its big appearance, you know, uh, tendrils outstretched, and it's about to transform them. But the episode ends yeah. right there, and it gives this big dramatic line right before that yeah. happens. As they're ready to die, it's uh, ready to yeah. give them a chance to live. Hmm. That's the end for volume 19. Finito. There is no real berserk news to catch you guys up on or even a second segment for the podcast. So um, I was going to leave it there. Uh, One thing I I guess we didn't talk about during the podcast itself was since we last revisited volume 19, we've seen the entirety of uh, berserk 2016. Um, in terms of the scenes that these volumes incorporate. And as I was rereading this portion of volume 19, I kind of kept getting, not mixed up, but the, uh, the animation, the, the way the animation approached these scenes kept flitting in my head as I was reading it, which kind of was a distraction to be spoiling honest. Spoiling your enjoyment. <laughs> I was trying to, yeah, spoiling my perception of some of the scenes, which was, that's it, not a great feeling. No, I'm, I'm glad to report that I've already forgotten all of it. So I could read these and be like, Nice. Yeah. Nice. I love this. So. Yeah. 
Like we were saying, I'm very jealous. Yeah. I've altered yeah. it all of it. <laughs> I, I guess the one thing that I would take away from that is that I feel like they really messed up Nina's portrayal in this. Uh, and I'm not trying to make this a large anime discussion, just that between the two versions, of course, the volume, uh, Nina has a role to play, and Grail, you mm-hmm. were uh, you did well describing that in this reread. But the anime, I, I feel like they just missed the point of her, and they, they kind of make her overstay her welcome in a lot of you scenes. You know, they, they miss like. the point of everything, man. I mean, I, I don't want to of get course. that again, but I fully agree that they fucked it up with Nina, but what didn't they fuck up, you know, is a question. They just, you know, so many characters, so many scenes are misrepresented. It's just... Yeah, let's not let's not get into that again. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll, I'll take not... this opportunity to to compliment uh, the manga. I think on its pacing because I think a lot of people were commenting on the recent episodes that have come out this year, saying, "Wow, the pacing is so tight," and the pacing is very tight in this particular part of the story too. So I think it's not yeah. a new thing. Yeah, um, and, Vera uh, does a very effective, uh, you know, switching between perspective of different groups of characters. Some things that's. Uh, done very often in novels as well, and um, yeah, I think he he uses it very effectively here. You know, uh, almost all the time on cliffhanger, you know, moments of tension. So, you know, you're glad to get back to these guys and you know group A and knowing what they're up to, but then you still want to do group B, and when you get to group B, you want to know what's going to happen to group A, but you're glad to get back. So it it kind of you know makes you read through it at the breakneck pace. You know, that's a very effective uh, narrative technique, uh, and I think it's used very well here. Yeah, it's a great specialty. Uh, I was also going to say, in um, this is slight switching of, of subject here, but in Serpico and, and Guts' fight on the cliffside, Serpico called the Berserk Musou game. He says, confronting you with sheer numbers is the height of folly. <laughs> and there we have it, folks. It's already foreshadowing the game, so... It's, oh boy! It's definitely canon, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, Berserk Muso is not out yet, but many people have posted videos. We've seen pretty much the whole game. There's one video on YouTube that's about 12 hours long that plays through most of the game. Yeah. Uh, I've also seen people have modified the game to be able to make Skull Knight playable and Grunbeld playable, but their move sets are very limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's interesting those things are happening. Yeah, it's way. weird. I. I have not felt the urge to play that game at all. I don't know how you guys No, felt. it's I mean, as we've got more information and as we got closer to release, let's say, my interest in the game plummeted. Like as I as it became very solid what the game would be, and then once I started seeing a, an average gameplay clip in action, I was just like, I don't know, man. I don't know if this is going to be for me. Yeah. Like even in a I'll support Berserk kind of way, I might buy it just to say I supported it and not really get much playtime out of yeah. it. Yeah, I think it might just because the, that type of game isn't really my cup of tea, so I'm not sure. Yeah, same here. Yeah, it's just like, I'm not, I'm not sure it's going to be a day one purchase for me. Uh, I might buy it, you know, to support the series and everything, but I, I have no real interest in the game proper. Uh, I, I think uh, the previous two games uh, each had their strengths and weaknesses, but at least they were made around Berserk, whereas this is just a declination of uh, of a long-running series, and it's basically just a Berserk skin on top of it. So, yeah. and and I'm not. It's uh like like Doom had uh, you know total conversion packs. This is the Berserk total conversion pack. For yeah, me, so. pretty much. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the Musou uh, recipe, so I guess uh, we'll see. You know, I might I might give it a, a 
breakthrough anyway, just to say I did. But yeah, not not very yep. enthused by it. Yep. Oh well. That's about it, guys. Uh, we'll be back in um, probably a month or so to, uh, to start up Volume 20. So stay tuned for that, and thanks for listening. Yay! Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.